friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Maria Moore. Maria spent the first years of her life as an old colony Mennonite in Mexico. Her life exposed her to emotional and sexual abuse, which was also the life that her mother endured. Generational trauma and the murder of her father are the foundations with which she was provided at a young age. Through education as a registered nurse and an end-of-life doula, she has learned how to take the shame of her past to educate and empower others with similar challenges. She has written a book, Not My Kind of Mennonite, to bring attention to the struggles of her parents as they moved out of the colony and tried to make a life in Canada. A murder, a criminal trial, addiction, mental health struggles, abuse, and the breakdown of a family set the tone of this true story. Thank you for being here, Maria. Welcome to the podcast. All right. So the first question I ask everyone on the podcast is, what does wellness mean to you? So what is wellness for you today, Maria? For me, wellness is a sort of a sense of balance. And that's between sort of physical and mental, whether I'm sleeping good, my body feels good. And mentally, I can find peace of mind. And Mm. I do that through... um, trying to work in some meditation daily, if not twice a day, as well as Mm. being outdoors and doing a walk. I have some pets, so Mm. I have a dog that motivates me to walk. So that generally gives me an overall feeling of wellness, body, being out in the fresh air and taking care of my mind too. I'm curious what type of meditation you practice, if there is a particular type or like what that looks like for you. And I used to meditate a little bit, and then I did a a death doula course, and I had one of the instructors who, at the beginning of our our course on sort of managing end-of-life care, he'd make us, I say make us, right, because it felt like a bit of a torturous process, take a few breaths, and we he would lead us in a meditation, which was simply to count to 20, and then he'd set a timer to see if we could last two minutes and three minutes. And just to have the thoughts kind of come in your head and flow out and being just very aware of what you were feeling in your body. And that was something I hadn't always taken time to do. So if I'm thinking, oh, as I'm sitting, my shoulders are tight. Now, why would that be? And why do I feel anxious to get this over with? Like what's going on in my head? So it was a moment even in the, in our class to, to sort of sit and, and check in and clear us to be ready to, to receive the education. But it's something I continued in my practice. And it's it's helpful because yeah. I can now set a timer and get to 20 minutes. And then when 20 minutes comes, I'm surprised it's over, where it's just been time to just sort of clean out what's going on in your head and do a body check-in so that you can start the day feeling sort of fresh that you're not carrying a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it's really simple, simply like the practice of just noticing what is here in this body, in this mind right now. And I think that's what worked best for me because I used to spend so much time trying to meditate and have my head clear. And then I'd be frustrated and think, well, there's no way that my head will ever be clear. 
So then I would find it to be more of a chore than something that I kind of look forward to now. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that distinction because I find a lot of people who come to me, like clients who come to me are like, I can't meditate. Like I can't clear my mind. And I have to, I mean, certainly there are forms of meditation where that is the goal, but not, not all of them and not the way that I practice either. It's not about clearing your mind. It's just about noticing what's there. Yeah. And and you mentioned um, your work as an end of life doula, which I had on my list of things to get to. Since you've mentioned it, I would love to dive into that topic. Um, And I am curious if you could just give people an overview of what that is um, for anyone who might not be familiar with what it means to be an end of life doula. Sure. And I did my education. It's been four years now and I had signed up to do a course and then it was, I was on a wait list. And so when the time came that they were ready to take me, it was also the same time that my father was dying. So I had thought, Oh, that doesn't seem right. Like that's a little heavy for me. And my instructor was excellent. And she said, there couldn't be a more perfect time for you to do this right now because you have to learn to take care of yourself and grief And this might be an example for you in supporting others. And she was absolutely right. And it did help me. And the reason I took it is I I had spent my life as a career as a nurse over 30 years and certainly supported many people to die, hundreds, but not in such a way that I was there emotionally for them. If you know what I mean, it was drugs. It was trying to make sure the room was set up for family to come in and, you know, and supporting others, but not necessarily the patient all the time because of the busyness of the work. And that was something I really wanted to have more connection with. Mm-hmm. And it it was a good course for me because it, it allowed you to sort of go through your own built up uh, grief and uh, cumulative <laughs> grief and have an understanding of what your own response was. And that was a big thing for me. And as I did that course, I began to open up a lot of things I'd shut off. And that was also some things that came up in my book when I was writing it is, you know, my own father's death and then other, and the loss of family, the loss of a religious community, a loss of faith and culture and how all that plays together in grief. It's not just simply the, the loss of someone's life. So it it was great in that perspective is that it it gave me a bigger lens. So now when I support people, it can come in any form. It can be someone who knows they're going to die and they might just want help going through some of their belongings and that what that memory looks like for them and how they assign each piece to a family member or how they might want to write a little note to everyone if they're comfortable with that. And then other cases, I support family members who's, who have elderly parents that are dying and that might be to work through their own guilt as children. And how do you have that relationship in this last week of life with someone that you were never able to establish for your whole life and making sure that they know that you don't have to make up for your whole lifetime of, you know, missed moments that you have this moment now and doing a focus on what can you do to support? And that might simply be to hold a hand, And it might be that you take a few pictures, which is what I encourage people to do. At the time, it feels wrong. But afterwards, I have many families. I'm so glad I took a picture, even if it's simply like holding their hand or just a picture of them sleeping in peace. And that can be something that helps people through grief after. 
So it comes in different ways. I have a little lady next door who's a widow and she's hoping this will be our first Christmas with her husband. And she herself wants to die. She doesn't want to be here any longer because she feels like, you know, her life purpose was having a husband and family. So it's just listening again and supporting her through how can life go on without a partner and how can she prepare for her death? Because Mm -hmm. she is approaching 90, so it's not an unreasonable thing to get ready and knowing how you want things done. So she just needs a little guidance here and there to have the courage to make those decisions. And it's valuable work, but it is different for everyone that approaches me. Yeah. I imagine that, um, that the experience of death and dying is different for every person. And so what people need at the end of their life might be different. And I'm guessing that if someone is seeking out, someone like you, an end-of-life doula, they're probably having, like, a lot of awareness of the process. You know, I think as a culture, we're very, like, afraid of death. Um, And I wonder what you see. Like, are you attracting people who are scared of dying? Or are there people who are really, like, see it as a sacred experience? That's how I view death. Um, Curious, you know, what, what approaches attitudes towards death you notice in your work and people come to me from various avenues where they might have heard that I was at a neighbor's bedside and helped them through it and they want to know what the steps were how did you help them what is it going to look like can I can I cope with watching my family member die is it going to be ugly is it going to be like a movie is it going to be peaceful And those are, of course, hard things to predict, but the education is a big piece on sort of telling them what that last breath might look like and how it's okay to not feel anything in that moment or feel everything. And that it it doesn't have to be a rushed process, that even after the last breath, there's still time to be spent. And I think that's something that a lot of people need to hear because they all kind of want to run from the room and call the coroner or call the funeral home and it's finished, let's get out of here. But uh, the ritual Mm -hmm. bath and combing their hair, and those were very therapeutic for myself uh, with my own parents. And as a doula, we can't do that work, but we can coach people through it and tell them, let's Mm -hmm. get, you know, their favorite, you know, lavender oil and let's wash them. Let's fix their hair. Let's put on something nice. It doesn't matter where they're headed. If they're going to a crematorium or a funeral home, it's it's part of the ritual of caring for them just as they had cared Mm -hmm. for you or reciprocating a love that was between you. And those are Mm. some reasons that I I get contacted. Some people are quite ready and they like to have someone to be able to talk to about it because their family might be reluctant to hear that I'm ready to die. And they'll be like, oh no, we don't want to hear it. We're sick of hearing it where I can sit there and just listen and just say, you know, what do you, do you have fears? Do you have wishes for how this looks? And they can work through all this, whether it's in a journal or write it out for their children so that when those last days come, they have a little package that they can pick up, you know, now that I'm dead, even it can be labeled on the envelope. And here's all the plans I've made. Here's the verses I'd like, you know, read at my funeral. And it's just a way to feel like you're in control. Yeah. And I think that that can be a real gift to the family or the people, the loved ones who are, who are kind of left kind of managing the logistics of death and dying, I imagine it's really helpful to have this, the person who's dying is prepared 
perhaps in this case, and it has like given instruction. So there's, cause I know in some experiences of death that I've been through, things are really chaotic and scattered and the paperwork is not all together. And like, we don't know what, what they wanted or where the passwords are. Um, and so I imagine it's a real gift to a family member, a loved one to have this sort of, you know, when I'm dead envelope <laughs> to give. Them. It truly is. <laughs> it takes a lot of the, the uh, what what's next sort of thoughts out of your head. If you open the envelope and someone's mm. already thought, like, here's the funeral home you're going to call and I prepaid there. Or this is the, mm. what I hope. My plot is here in case you forgot. And, you know, here's the person who did the engraving on the stone. So when you're ready, then you call and have that added because everyone has so many questions because they don't aren't necessarily involved in all the steps that led to that day. So it makes it, yeah. it much nicer for everyone, really. Yeah, I recently this year started um, like writing all of this stuff down for myself as like a ritual around um, All Saints Day, Halloween. Um, you know, it can be like associated with pagan practices, but it doesn't have to be. And I can link in the show notes for people. I have a packet that I have downloaded and used from someone else that made it that is really helpful. I shared with my partner, like th these are my wishes. This is what I want. I think that that is, it's really important that we um, get a little bit more comfortable with this one part of life that is inevitable. And right now I'm at a stage where I have a, a five-year-old granddaughter who has a, a ton of questions about death and it makes my son and his wife sometimes uncomfortable. And how do we answer this? Mm. Like where did grandma go? <laughs> And I said, well, I think yeah. it's now is the time we talk now, you know, mm. that, you know, her soul is still in our hearts. We can carry her here, but we don't get to visit her in person. And I keep pictures of my parents up all the time. And she comes in and says hi to them every time she walks in the house. You know, it's just part mm. of her ritual that, oh, there's Gigi, great grandma and grandpa. And, and it's just yeah. puts it into a norm so that it doesn't make everyone sort of freeze in the room when they don't know what to say next. Yeah. I'm curious how you advise people to talk to children about death. Are there specific, um, you know, guidelines or like pointers that you have? And I, I think you just answer what questions they have because their questions are not going to be the same as an adult's. Cause even when a dog dies, for example, and my granddaughter's there. And so where is he now then? You know, like they just want to know physically where they are. That's the question. And yep. when they've lost yep. children lose family members, they might worry more about, you know, who's going to make cake at, at their birthday now. And that might be mm -hmm. all that there is in that day. And then it might come up again. It's important, I think, to be honest. You don't have to get into the, you know, the body decay and <laughs> and necessarily right. what cremation might be if people aren't ready. But when they're ready... I think it's important that they know so far we're just sort of handling questions as they come and other children are the same where it surprises the adult and the ch child can pick up on that anxiety within the adult. And then they're going to keep kind of yeah. picking at that because that's just what kids yeah. do. Like if that's awkward, yeah. I need to find out why that's awkward. You're not telling me one piece here that's making this tense where if it isn't tense yes. and you just say, Oh, you know, Gigi would have really liked that. You know, she would have loved to have cake with us today. And this is her recipe and I'll give it to you when you're ready to cook. And we'll share that from her and those sort of things, yeah. but not jumping in and giving too much information, just little bits as they ask the questions. Something that I advise 
people too is to keep it factual and it sounds like that's what you're doing too mm-hmm. like um because kids don't well young kids are not thinking abstractly necessarily like you said they want to know well like who's going to do this come this time or like where is their body um and yeah. it's helpful to keep it like factual where the body actually is and um and sounds like ritual is important and that can be introduced to children too which is beautiful yeah I'm curious in the um, process. Uh, well, I, I'm curious about the timeline. You said four years ago you started this process of becoming an end of life doula. Where along that timeline were you writing your book? And I started my book like unknowingly many years before. I had done some research and I would find out little bits of things over time. Um, so my background is, you know, was, was an old colony Mennonite. I was raised in Northern Mexico. And then there was a, uh, an event where my father was killed. And so I was placed up for adoption at the age of nine, but at the age of nine, you still have a lot of memory. You have a lot of rituals that you were raised with, especially religious, um, mm-hmm. rituals. And when I was adopted, I was not put into a, a Mennonite home. It was, uh, yeah, a non-men in a home. So over the years, I, I knew my parents. I knew my siblings. I was not adopted with all of my siblings, just a few. So as I got to be older and in the era of phone books, I would remember a name and I would just go to a phone book and look it up. And then I would just cold call people. So I had done that for several mm-hmm. years and eventually found a few relatives that were like, yes, I'm your first cousin, you know. And some of them spoke English and many did mm-hmm. not because that wasn't um, my first language. But the research got more serious after my mother died. So my father died. And then within nine months, my mother died. And so these are my adoptive parents. So I supported them through their death. And my mom said, you know, you always wanted to write a book. Why don't you do that? And I said, I don't know, you know, and I don't know what it would be about. And, and anyway, I sort of kept that nugget in my head and then she was, she was gone and we worked through that grief and, and I decided then that it might be a good time to change my my job. So I went, I, I quit my leadership nursing position and I decided to uh, take, a, take a year just to be with myself, be with the grief and uh, see where it led me. And then I had all sorts of energy to go and rekindle some of these relationships I'd made over the years and interview people. So I went to my relatives and started interviewing. I found court records of my dad's trial And then I went to newspapers and went through old newspaper logs and microfilm trying to find the court documents. And then I just started Mm -hmm. reaching out. So it took me probably maybe two years in total of active research and then deciding it was going to be a book instead of just a self-discovery for me to finally get it ready Mm -hmm. to go to an editor. Yeah. So did you know that you would write a book when you started the research or was it just a self-discovery process at the beginning? It was just a self-discovery process for me. I wanted to know the answers. I had memory. I was in the house the night that my father died. And so those memories were always in my head. I relived them many times as trauma victims do. It was one of those things that I always had. And so when I got talking to other people and and family, it ended up I knew more than any of them did about the di- that night. And 
I would interview women. This is what I found to be most fascinating. I would sit with women who knew me as a child of maybe two years old, <laughs> and they would have such a kinship to me because we were related by blood that they would share all of these stories of my mother's life and her sister's life that were horrific. Mm. And I would hear these stories and I would just be appalled at them. And then they would just so calmly tell them to me and with such, you know, no attachment to them. And I just thought, how, how can that be that you can spread that story to me, not knowing me and not have any emotional connection to it. And then it took me a few interviews to realize that they too had been through similar trauma and that this was just a very normal part of their life. And then when I would be done and I said, you know, it might go into a book. I don't know. I don't know how to pull it all together. Then someone would say, well, when you write this book, it's, it's, it's your family story. It's not just yours. You're speaking for all of us women when you write your story. And I thought, okay, well, that's pretty powerful <laughs> and heavy. So then I got thinking, you know, my mother would have liked probably to have that recognition in her life. And as my granddaughter grows and my next granddaughter grows, um, it would be good for them to know the path and also to know the strength that came. There was many weaknesses, but it takes a lot of strength to get through generational trauma and find your way out of these um, types of relationships and religion. So then it became a book. The pieces all seemed to fall together between family members. And I met a, a fellow online just randomly. I had put a note on this website that was, you know, historical information of this town where my family lived. And I said, does anyone remember my dad? And I put his name there and a man came forward and said, I was friends with your father. And I thought, well, that's pretty amazing. It's been 50 years since he died. And so we developed a very close relationship and it was during COVID. So I never met him face to face, but he did a lot of research for me. He helped me. And he said, your father would want this book written. It's absolutely important to him. Unfortunately, he died about a month before it was published. So I felt heartbroken about that, but I thought, you know, that was, it meant so much to him to be part of that process that I felt like that was probably a weight off his shoulders just to know that something positive had come out of this relationship he had with this fellow that had died so many years before. Yeah, so powerful. And the story alone is, is so powerful. I'm, there's so much that I could ask and I, I want people to, to read the book. So I won't make you share every detail, but I'm, I'm curious to back up a little bit. If you can talk about what an old colony Mennonite is, I don't know that everyone would be familiar with that particular um, denomination. Sure. So my ancestors originally came from, <clears throat> excuse me, Prussia or Ukraine right now. And they came over in 1875 um, they were offered some land in Canada and Manitoba. Um, that's just kind of when they were trying to get the provinces settled. So they took the land and many came over in 1875 and then many came over in subsequent years. So my great grandparents came over, they settled in Manitoba. And it was a time when they they could bring some of their farming practices from Russia they're very ritualistic people, so they, they set up their villages exactly as they were in Russia. The streets were laid out the same, the schools were in the same place, and they named them the exact same village names as they were in Russia. So if you came from Shortitsa colony in Russia, when you came to Manitoba, you would be in the Shortitsa colony instead of the Bergenthal colony. And so it, it kept those traditions, and that was important to them to have that structure. 
And Canadian government was pretty willing at first to let them have their own schools and not um, participate in the military because traditionally they're pacifists. And then all of a sudden, 1920 came and there's world wars going on and the schools that Mennonites educate their children are in German. So all of a sudden there is a lot of German speaking people in Manitoba and Canada and running German schools and it had a bad feeling to it. So they said, guess what? You have to integrate your children into Canadian schools and they need to learn English. So some said, okay, we will do that. And then about 7,000 of them said, no way. We're sticking to our religious rights. And often in a Mennonite church, that is what happens where there might be one leader. And then if they're adapting to more liberal views, a branch will break off and a couple of other people, usually always men, will identify themselves as another leader and they'll start another sort of sect. Sect, maybe that's not the right word, but <laughs> colony. Mm -hmm. So that's what mm -hmm. happened. And they were offered land in northern Mexico because no one could live there and grow anything. And the price was right. So 7,000 Mexicans, including my grandparents and our Mennonites, um, jumped on that train from Manitoba and drove the train all the way down to northern Mexico. And they settled that land there in about 1923. And my both my parents, maternal and paternal, were born in Mexico. So they settled in that colony. And again, they set it up exactly like it had been set up in Prussia. Same regional names, same churches, same streets. And they brought the same crops, which unfortunately didn't grow there. So there was some starvation and mm. they had building materials they brought. They brought all their animals from Canada down there, hoping to just sort of set up the way it was. And they didn't, they couldn't build houses the same way. They didn't have the lumber. There was no trees. And so they had a lot of failures, many years of struggles before they were able to adapt and learn about the culture and the people around there. So mm. then what happened subsequently is because of the hardships and many Mennonite children, because families are so large, they couldn't have a farm the way their ancestors did. So they were spreading out, trying to get more land, and they couldn't feed their family. So that's when my parents decided to be migrant workers. So then they would migrate to Ontario, and we would all work in the fields picking vegetables. At any age, three and four, you're picking peppers and cucumbers. Everyone works when you're a Mennonite kid. And then you'd stay your term here, and then you'd go back again. And that became more of a struggle as you were sort of immersed into a culture you'd never seen before. My parents, when they came as migrant workers, had only lived in Mexico and lived in their little community. They'd never seen snow. They'd never seen all the lakes and the, the trees that exist in Canada. So when they came back and forth, it was a bit of a culture shock. And oftentimes when they went back to Mexico, they had to be sort of excommunicated or isolated because they came with Canadian ideals and ideas. And they thought that might you know, disrupt the colony and their way of life and thinking. So there was always conflict. And I touch on that a little bit in the book on the struggles that they must have had in trying to get ahead, but at the same time being so repressed by their faith that they couldn't follow some of the new learnings they had taken on in Canada and Ontario. And many of them have come back to Canada a lot in Ontario. Some went back to Manitoba because they couldn't make it. And other people then just went even further south and they end up in Paraguay and Bolivia. And they got land down there because, again, a little group of them would break away because maybe the Mexican or Mennonites decided to have tractors with rubber wheels instead of steel. 
And that was a progress they weren't willing to accept. So then they headed further south. And that continues to be the practice. Everyone sort of breaks away. It's so hard to have to say that, you know, that's why my book title, Not My Kind of Mennonite, there's so many kinds that people will just disassociate themselves from a kind that they don't approve of. And that mm. came to me personally when I was, I had met a, um, a work colleague and she was telling me about her life as a, as a Mennonite. And when she was finished, I said, you know, I come from a Mennonite back, background as well. And I told her about my family and she was, she stopped and she goes, oh, wait, you're not my kind of Mennonite. And I said, oh, <laughs> and she goes, yeah, yeah, you're not the kind of Mennonites that my kind of Mennonites hangs out with. And so I, I was a bit offended and I thought, well, obviously I, I don't look Mennonite. I'm not a practicing Mennonite. And, and at the time I thought, you know, there's a lot in those words. And the more research I did, the more I realized how easy it is for one sort of group of religious followers who can turn their back on the next one that aren't thriving, that aren't following the rules to a level that they agree with and just start fresh again. And that is something that sort of left my parents. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if all the people that you met in writing the book and researching the book, all those women that you mentioned and some other people who knew your family, were they part of the Mennonite colony or was were there any relationships outside of that colony that your family had? Um, no, they were all part of the Mennonite colony. And everyone, mm-hmm. see, my family came up in the 1960s. Others never came up until 1980. So when my mm-hmm. father had been killed and our family was separated, many of my father's siblings were still in Mexico and they didn't know what happened and they didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. So when I started to go and find these family members to have a better understanding what life was like in Mexico, they were just as fascinated with me as I was with them because they didn't know what happened to me. They had heard all sorts of stories and rumors and Mennonites are really good at telling stories. You know, the theory had been, you know, we were captured and we were in the States somewhere and taken in. And I'm just like, Oh heavens, you know, no, none of that happened. I grew up on a little farm. (laughs) Mm. And, uh, but it was, it was through that, that you saw the struggles that they themselves went through that my story was horrible, but it was not the only horrible story. That many of them had such poverty and the children like from age five until 15, like some of their parents became um, either disabled through farm labor accidents or alcoholism, that the children were the main providers of food and tried to work in the fields, trying to get enough money so they could eat. And my story became one of many stories. And that's Mm -hmm. why it kind of motivated me to, to, to publish it and, to tell some of the harsh stories that I talk about in there about the sexual abuse and the physical abuse that that goes on in the colonies because I certainly wasn't alone. Yes, it's so important that that information is um, disseminated and that people are becoming more familiar with just how insidious and rampant a lot of this type of abuse is within religious communities, unfortunately. Yes, and that it was hard for me to write it. It definitely was. It was hard to hear the stories. And there was many times I would come home and I would tell my husband some other things and he would help debrief with me. And then I would need a week or two to think it through. And I would journal it and try and find a way to write it down that it was respectful. And I think as a nurse that 
was beneficial because as you know, when you're providing care, like you can certainly immerse yourself into it, but you have to be outside of it enough that you can have a different perspective. So I had to put my nurse hat on many times to stand across the room and look at it and just say, so if this was a patient, how would that look to me? And walk around it a few times before I could write it. And I, even if I was the one that was in the story, I had to take myself out of it, take a look and just say, you know, are these the right words to describe this? Is this going to traumatize someone else? And does it do enough justice without giving so many details that, you know, no one can finish reading it? So it was always a step in and then step out. And then I would, again, have to meditate. And sometimes I, I'm kind of a smudger. So I would do self-smudging <laughs> and grounding mm. so that I would keep the energy flowing and know that, you know, those memories don't stick to me. They don't stay part of me. They can be written down and yes. stay on the paper. Uh, yeah, it sounds like taking care of yourself through the process of researching and writing was really important. It's such an intimate and close story to you that it sounds like it took a lot of intention to to write this and take care of your own well-being at the same time. It definitely did. I, um, I had some Reiki sessions. I became a Reiki master too along my journey so that I could help mm. with myself and the flow of energy and earthing mm. and grounding to make sure that you know, I wasn't caring too much. What would you want people to take away from reading your book? I imagine a lot of things, but what do you think is most important for people to understand? The feedback, when I wrote the book, I wasn't sure if people would look at me differently. It became, of course, it's a very personal story. I wanted people to have an understanding that through trauma and generational trauma, there is hope for leading a fulfilling life. Some people become paralyzed by their trauma and then they can't find a way to move forward. And I'm not saying that's right. intentional. I'm just saying that everyone has more trauma to bear. And through my work as a nurse and as a mental health nurse, I certainly educated myself and read enough books to have a better understanding of how my my body tells the story and being more aware of the physical effects of that trauma on myself. And I hoped when I wrote it that someone might see that there is an option for them if they were in that similar situation, whether they were Mennonite or in any other sort of controlled religion or none at all, that the feeling of being trapped can make people feel hopeless. Yeah. The feedback I've gotten so far has been excellent. I haven't had anyone, even Mennonite women, say that it was too hard to read. They said it was refreshing to read a story that was like yeah. theirs. Other people have read it and just said that if, you know, you had the power to forgive, that they had some work to do on themselves and they need to forgive some people in their life. Mm -hmm. And I don't talk about forgiveness in my book. That was just a message that they took from how I was able to sit with my, my mother, my biological mother and her death and work through some of those mm -hmm. things. So it brings meaning to everyone. And I enjoy always hearing the feedback, mm. but I was hopeful like my children. The first time they heard of my story was when I published my wow. book. <clears throat> and then some people say, Oh my goodness, you could have talked about that earlier. And it wasn't. And my son said, why, why now? And I said, it was my purpose to not have generational mm. trauma. You don't need to relive all of the trauma that my family has gone through. You need to know it and be aware of it. 
but it's not yours to live. We started fresh. <laughs> we started with hope and communication and a very different life. And so they had an understanding of that. And I hope that maybe when other people read it, that they themselves can pull themselves out of their, their place in that line of generations of, you know, sexual abuse and verbal abuse and emotional abuse, mm. that they can start fresh and have a generation that doesn't bear that. Yeah. Was, was writing and publishing this book for you part of healing? Or do you, do you not associate the writing with the healing process for yourself? It was definitely part of the healing. Mm as I did the research and then I would write a chapter. And of course, as a writer, you have to go back and edit that like seven times mm-hmm. <laughs> and you would read through it again and you would read through it again. And there would be some almost desensitization to the words. Right. And then you would think, okay, so I think that's out of me now. That's done. That mm-hmm. piece is done. And then you'd move on to the next piece. So it definitely worked for me in that way that I felt like once it was on the paper, it was out of me. And then I hopefully put it in words that were kind enough for others to be able to read and that it might lead them on the same journey. Mm-hmm. But that was, it was definitely therapeutic for yeah. me. Yeah. And it sounds like you wear a lot of hats in your life that are very much caretaking and holding a lot of other people's um, pain, whether it's through your work as a doula or a nurse or a mother or grandmother and holding the stories of, of a kind of a generation, it sounds like in, in the book that you've written, how do you take care of yourself amidst all of that? How do you meet your own needs while caring for others? And I, I think over time, <clears throat> nature has been one of my best colleagues in helping me when my kids were little and life was busy, we went to provincial parks and hikes and it was for their exercise and my mental well-being. I've always found great comfort in just being outdoors. And that's when sort of Reiki came into my life too. I did some uh, Qigong training and some forest walks and finding some ways to get peace from things that were outside of myself. And they worked well for me. And a formal religion has never really got back into my life, but through um, Buddhism and understanding where my ego comes to play and not listening to it too much and trying to stay grounded, um, mm. barefoot in the woods, yep. <laughs> my hippie ways, um, <laughs> it helps me. Yeah, it helps me just to stay in alignment. And I know you do a lot of yoga. I I attempt to do yoga. I'm no expert in yoga. I struggle. I sweat a lot in yoga um, as I try mm-hmm. and maintain my postures and keep my head focused. It's mm-hmm. the hardest work I do, that you, despite me running. But those are good spiritual practices mm-hmm. for me. And I try and encourage that in my children who have sort of high-stress jobs and my grandkids and I can sit on a cushion and play, uh, you know, our deep breath game. And we uh, take our moments to calm ourselves down and just hear our heart, as my oh. granddaughter says. I can hear my heart when I sit oh. and I'm just like, okay, it's yes. good to hear your heart. Then you're yes. in tune to it. So those are my bits. But it, it's, it takes time, I think, to realize what you need. Maturity maybe helps with that. You got there early, <laughs> knowing that your body needs this and that. And 
I think it took me longer because there was a lot of things blocking me from letting that in, which was the trauma, which was the the baggage I carried. Mm-hmm. And once you kind of release some of that, you can let in all the good things that you need mm-hmm. to stay healthy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, thank you so much for having this conversation, and I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that folks will go out and read your book and and follow you, follow your work. Where can people learn more about you or purchase your book? Not my kind of men. Um, so I do have a website and you can get a book from me there too. I'll send you an autographed one. I do even offer to sit in on book groups via Zoom. Amazing. And if you're close enough, I'll do it in person because I think it works as a good debrief if people read the book and they mm. sometimes have a lot of questions or it brings up a lot of thoughts. Yeah. And so the website is www.notmykindofmennonite.com. My book is on all the usual kind of spots. It's on Amazon, Indigo, wherever you buy your book, you can get it. They might not always carry it on the shelf, but they can always order it in. Yeah. Awesome. Um, And I will link all of that in the show notes. Um, If people want to have you come in person to their book club, where are you located? Are you in Ontario? I am in Ontario. I don't mind a road trip. I've been all through Ontario doing book clubs <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's great fun. I know my, my book sometimes isn't a great fun topic, but we have such great discussions when we get there and I thoroughly enjoy that. And uh, I don't mind jumping over and over a border if I uh, need to as well. I'm only an hour from the United States, Michigan and New York area. So that's okay too. Yeah. What a treat to be able to have the author come to the book club reading. It makes me want to start a book club. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Maria, so much for being here. I really appreciate your time in this conversation. Thanks so much, Carrie, for, for letting me be part of your show. I love it. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy or my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.